Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 876. Pastor Calvin extended a welcome to the family members of our college students, and as the pastor who spends the most time with our students, uh, I also want to extend a warm welcome. We love your students very much. You should know that at Bull Street, we fundamentally believe the, the best regular diet for the believer is to systematically work through the Word of God. And so that's what orients our Sunday morning services. We study verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. And a consequence of that conviction is that sometimes you end up in passages that are more obscure. Probably not many churches this morning are studying Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. But the Lord has something for us. If you were following Jesus in the 1990s or the 2000s, or even loosely connected to the church, uh, there was a cultural moment that was taking us by storm. There was a series of books called The Left Behind Books, 65 million copies sold. Uh, We were in end times fever. We probably overdid it a little bit. We probably got a little too crazy looking at the details, looking at the signs and the times. But reacting against that, as as a millennial who grew up in that environment, I was so convicted this week studying this passage that I realized that in recent years, I'm worried we have so de-emphasized the return of Christ that we have numbed our affections toward it. Do you merely believe that Jesus will come back someday? Or do you anticipate it with joy? Do you long for it? Because the problem is, if I'm not looking forward to the return of my Savior in my heart, then I am behaving like the rest of the world that is not adequately prepared for the return of Jesus. The title of my sermon is, What If It Were Today? When I am not rightly longing for my king to return, then in practice, I am living like the rest of the world that will be greatly caught off guard by his return. What if it were today? What if Jesus is returning June 5th, 2022 at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time? We will see from the text this morning that the world will be greatly surprised by Christ's return, but we should not be surprised. Instead, we should receive him with joy and trembling. All passages on the second coming have an aspect of us needing to be prepared. Pastor Andrew preached a sermon from Luke 12 uh, back in March that was more specifically on that topic of be prepared, people be ready for the return of Christ. This passage, however, highlights Uh, it, It highlights the necessity of being prepared, but it also emphasizes the obliviousness that people have toward the return of Christ. So this morning, I do want to help us be prepared for the return of Christ, but I also want us to meditate on the fact 
that most people are oblivious to Christ's kingship and his return, we should not be surprised by that. We should anticipate that. Also, though, we must not be distracted with the same things that the world gets distracted with. The inciting incident for this passage is the Pharisees asking Jesus about the timing and the signs of the kingdom of God, but they were missing it. Jesus doesn't want his followers to focus on the same things that the the Pharisees were focusing on. In fact, loving Christ's kingdom more than this life is what marks a true follower of Christ. Those who were spiritually dead, but have been raised to life, understand that the cross is the only sign that we need. And now we await for the return of our bridegroom. One last thing before we read a little interactive game to start our sermon. How many sermons start with an interactive game? Raise your hand if your Bible has Luke 17, 36 in it. Do you have Luke 17 verse 36. Anybody? I see a couple hands. I see that hand. Uh, Many of us have the ESV. That's what I'm going to be preaching from. My Bible skips from 35 to 37. I just wanted to point this out so that we're not distracted by it later in case someone someone is very observant. Uh, This is the fruit of us having, by God's grace, thousands of manuscripts of the, the New Testament texts. And in uh, recent times, really since kind of the translation of the King James Bible, scholars have determined that the best and most trustworthy copies we have of Luke don't include that verse. Now, this isn't something we need to be troubled by uh, because the words of that verse are in Matthew. So it is scriptural, it is truth that Jesus spoke. Uh, And it is the same idea. He's talking about how one will be taken and the other will be left. And he mentions two people in a bed, two people grinding, uh, uh, like at a mill. And then verse 36 mentioned two men in a field. So it's the same idea, reiterated in other words. When we get there, you don't have to be concerned if you're missing a verse from your Bible. It It didn't fall out accidentally. If you would now, though, stand with me, and let's read from God's Word. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the day of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, 
and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life will keep it. I tell you in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Father, I ask again that you would take your word and you would use it to transform our hearts, to make us look more like Christ, and to love him more deeply. And in light of this passage, may we long for his return with great joy and anticipation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My first point is, don't be surprised by people oblivious to Christ's kingship. Don't be surprised by people oblivious to Christ's kingship. Look from verses 20 to 25. There's a contrast here between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples. It starts by the Pharisees asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. The problem is they were looking for a kingdom of God. They were looking for their version of the kingdom of God, but they were completely missing it. They were looking for something observable. They were looking for a political Messiah to come reestablish Israel's prominence over its enemies, namely the empire of Rome that was in charge at the time. But we should be just struck by Jesus' irony when he tells them, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Pharisees were asking, the king of kings, when the kingdom of God would come. He says, you're looking at him in so many words. They wanted to know the when the timing, and the signs. But Jesus didn't want his disciples to focus on those things. He wants his disciples to know something different about his return. Look at what he says to his followers in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. The thing Jesus wants his followers to know is that his return will be unmistakable. And that's all we need to know. It will be unmistakable. Think of the craziest, biggest thunderstorm you've ever seen in your life. There's something helpful about that that puts us in our place as small creatures when the skies crack open. When lightning strikes nearby, 
It causes us to jump. There is no mistaking when lightning strikes. And Jesus says that when he comes, it will be like lightning lighting up the sky from one end to the other. Christ's return will be clear. It will be cosmic. It will be comprehensive. And as a sign, as far as a sign is concerned, several months ago we looked in Luke 11, he says, the only sign you need is the sign of Jonah. Here, he says in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The only sign that believers need is the sign of the cross and the empty tomb. As surely as Christ has come, he will come again. He gave his life, rose from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Pharisees rejected him as Lord. People today still reject him as Lord. When they do it, it's because they don't understand the sign of the cross. This shouldn't surprise us. First and foremost, it shouldn't surprise us because if not for the grace of God, we too would still be spiritually dead. Jesus goes on to teach us more about what it looks like when the world is oblivious to his kingship and his return. Point number two, he doesn't want us to be distracted by the pursuits of oblivious people. Jesus doesn't want us to be distracted by the pursuits of oblivious people. He gives two illustrations from the very earliest chapters of Scripture in Noah and Lot. Read with me uh, in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Does anything strike you as interesting about Jesus using those two examples, but the way that he frames those two examples? If you're familiar with these passages in Genesis 6 for Noah and Genesis 13 for the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, the text is very clear about the wickedness of people in those days. They're, they're stories that emphasize how far humanity had fallen from the garden just a few chapters earlier. And the judgment that it was right for a holy God to bring toward his creation. But here, Jesus doesn't emphasize that. Instead, he emphasizes the mundane nature of life. Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, was only evil continually. 
He told Noah in uh, Genesis 5, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. But Jesus says, They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, planting, and building. Once Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was cut off from God. We can't do anything to make us more or less cut off from God. In our fallen state, we as people worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. And sometimes this looks like really egregious, detestable, pagan idol worship. It certainly looks like that in the days of Noah and Lot. But other times, you know what it looks like. It looks like eating, drinking, making plans, looking toward the comforts of this life. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16 speaks of the sin of Sodom by saying, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. What's wrong with planting? Nothing. We have many talented gardeners in our midst. There's nothing wrong with planting. There's nothing wrong with building. But brothers and sisters, what if it were today? What if Jesus came back today? His return should bear weight on the smallest details of our everyday life, the most mundane decisions that we make, and the plans that we make as believers, as Christ followers, should be made with his return as part of our consideration. James 4 is a helpful cross-reference for us. Verses 13 to 17 of James 4 say, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's not a cliche for Christians to say. Truly, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There is nothing wrong with planning for the future. There is great wisdom, great wisdom in investing and planning for the future. But brothers and sisters, Christ did not come to purchase a comfortable retirement for us. He came to earn us an eternal inheritance. Our comforts are comforting by definition, but what if it were today? Jesus says to remember Lot's wife. On that day, 
There's no running back inside. There's no running back from the field. Jesus wants his followers to understand the finality of his return. Your things are not eternal. But Jesus is trying to show us that. This week I was convicted in studying of how we in the church can sometimes spiritualize language around saving and investment. And again, we are commanded to be good stewards with what the Lord has given us. That is right and good. But there's kind of a, an idea that, well, if I can make as much as I possibly can, then that'll allow me to give as much as I possibly can and be as generous as I possibly can. And I was convicted that at times my flesh will say that, giving lip service to my king to hide a greedy and selfish heart. When I'm daydreaming and fantasizing about the comforts that the Lord hasn't given me, I'm not daydreaming about being more generous. My flesh longs, craves for temporary comforts, but my Savior offers eternal rest by way of a cross. The example he gives is, as, as, as our example, is not the ones who were walking in to the temple making loud noises by dropping in bags of money. But he holds up the widow who gave two pennies, saying that she gave all that she had. And that is how we prepare for the coming of Christ. Point number three, how do we prepare for Jesus' second coming. Look with me, starting in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And he said to them, Where, Lord? They said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. How do we prepare for Christ's second coming? We love Jesus more than we love this world. That is a question that only you can ask before this text, before the Holy Spirit. We will struggle with this as believers, but fundamentally, do you love this world more than you love Jesus. It's a matter of the heart. The examples he gives of two people in the same bed, two women grinding together. There's no perceivable difference from the outside. But one is taken and one is left. The Holy Spirit sees our hearts. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit transforms our hearts to enable us to love Jesus more than we love this world. We are born into this world loving the world more than we love Jesus. If you are here this morning 
and you realize that you have never repented of your sin and confessed Jesus as your Savior, I pray that this text would be deeply troubling for you. The phrase, what if it were today, brings comfort for the believer because we see that the sorrows of this life will be gone on that day. What if it were today, my tears would be wiped away. But there is a strong warning for those who don't know Jesus. Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. There are many, many spiritually dead people. And as surely as in the wilderness, if you see vultures gathering, you know it's because there is a dead body. So too will the, come, the Son of Man come again, and there will be many spiritually dead people who did not heed the warnings that I'm telling you now to repent and believe. Christ has earned your righteousness by his obedience. It is available to you. Don't be the one that is either left or taken. I think it's a little ambiguous which one is uh, the, the, good, the good one or the bad one. I think it's ambiguous because for Noah and for Lot, they were taken away from judgment. However, here, uh, looking toward the verse about the vultures gathering, it seems like uh, you want or you don't want to be taken. Whether, whether this passage is pre-trib or post-trib, I don't think is the point. The point is that one will be taken and one will not be. You can look at the outside and see no difference, but the Son of Man sees your heart. Prepare for his second coming by loving Jesus more than the world. And if you don't know if that's you, ask him to help you love him more. Ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart to love him more than you love the world. We also must go to the world that is dying. I can't help but see these illustrations that Jesus gives and see the intimacy of them in the relationship. Two people in the same bed. The women grinding the, the mills to grind the wheat at the time required two people. One person couldn't do it by themselves. These are family members and co-workers. And in this age, the means that God has given for proclaiming this good news to the world is through his people. Prepare for Jesus' coming by feeling the urgency of this passage. What if it were today? Christian, that is our warning from that phrase. What if it were today? We can't waste any more time. We're not promised any more time. He could come back before I finish speaking. Finally, I think there's a connection from this passage into the one that follows. We've already studied that um, a few weeks back when we were studying Jesus' teachings on prayer. But from verses 9 to 14, Jesus gives us a parable of, or excuse me, 18 verses 1 to 8. 
he gives us a parable of a persistent widow and how there is an urgency that we should have in our prayer lives. We can't just go to a world that is dying with urgency in our own power. We must be seeking the Lord and asking his Holy Spirit to be tilling the hard ground before us, preparing the way for his word. Love Jesus more than the world. Go to the world that is dying and do it in prayer. Church, Jesus did not come back in his disciples' lifetime. He said that they might long to see it, but they wouldn't. He might not come back in our lifetime. He could come back before I'm done speaking, and he might not come back for another thousand years. Whatever he decides, that's okay. He is coming back. That's all that we need to know today. He gave his life for us. He has not abandoned us. These are the words of a man that bled and died for us. So don't be surprised if other people doubt, especially the more time that passes. Don't be discouraged from being obedient. And don't get distracted with the things that the world gets distracted with. Be willing to lose this life in order that you might gain eternal life with our King. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified. Over this whole earth scattered wide, what if it were today? Glory, glory, joy to my heart will bring. Glory, glory, when we shall crown him king. Glory, glory, haste to prepare the way. Glory, glory, Jesus will come someday. Father, I ask that you would take your word, oh, plant it deep in our hearts. I ask that you would bear great fruit from this passage. Forgive us for uh, not longing for your return in recent years. Forgive me for doing that. Thank you for passages like these to correct us. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. May we see lives transformed until we see your face. We look forward to that day when what is currently invisible to our eyes will be visible. Oh, Jesus, I long to see your face. I long to touch your hands and worship at your physical feet. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.